We've got a little mini-series which are going to be spread out over a few weeks. So that we'll have one and then we're going through the songs in the Old Testament and then we'll have another one and we'll go through some more songs in the Old Testament. The little mini-series is about Israel because, of course, uh, with the news of, um, dominated by the tragedy in Gaza, uh, which has almost uh, supplanted the terrible uh, tragedy that, that um, Hamas inflicted on the Jews, uh, we, we just can't get it out of our heads that, hey, the Bible is about Jews and what was going on with Israel. And we need to be able to see what it is that the Bible is saying to us and so we can understand what's going on in the news. And so we're, uh, we're doing this, uh, got this series of three on how Israel is seen in the Bible. And, and the first one is, uh, what about God's favourites because when we look at Israel in the Bible we kind of see God has a favourite nation they've got this favoured nation status and is it really God's favourite does God have favourites and the answer we're going to find is actually there aren't any favourites in fact we aren't God's favourites either but that, that, that's difficult isn't it because Israel does seem special in God's eyes. I mean, he, um, uh, Israel definitely is special in some way. And do they have a role in God's future? Yes, definitely. But so does every other nation. The difference is we have more details about what the future is for Israel. It's going to be the geographical centre of a war that's going to result in Jesus coming back. So it's important for us. But is the nation of Israel God's favourite that can do no wrong? When we read the Old Testament prophets, we see that they certainly did find fault with what Israel did many, many times. Though they had a hard time persuading their fellow Jews that they were at fault. So let's hear a bit from Amos to see how he manages to get that message across. Reading uh, first of all from Amos chapter 1 starting at verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Isaiah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aven and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, 
even for four I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fires on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the lust of the Philistines are dead, says the Sovereign Lord. Now we're jumping into chapter 2 from verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for, a, for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. You see what Amos did? He hit on a good plan. He decided to give Israel and Judah, who were listening to him, all the judgments that were coming on their enemies. So he said, these judgments are going to come on Syria in the north of you. These judgments are going to come on Gaza in the south of you. And that grabbed the attention of the crowd. They were cheering, down with those wicked foreigners. And Amos said he would judge them for their sins of violence against civilians. And when the cheering died down, he turned to the people on the east of Israel, to Moab and to Edom. That's uh, present-day West Bank and present-day Jordan. And itemized how God was going to judge them and more cheers and more jeers against the enemy. And then... Amos turned to describe God's view of Judah and Israel and itemized their sins and the judgments that God is going to bring against them. Silence. Well, perhaps some shuffling of feet and perhaps uh, looking to see if you can find a stone to throw. We now know what Israel didn't know, that everyone is equal in God's sight. There isn't a favoured nation, there aren't favoured people. Nationalities and riches and colour and gender don't make you better than anyone else. We are all equally important. Of course, that's now enshrined in our most important documents. It's enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's in 1948, after the terrible wars. Or in national constitutions, we repeat it. Uh, the Americans say, all men are created equal. Of course, when they wrote that, they weren't thinking about the women, and they definitely weren't thinking about the slaves. But now they kind of apply it to them too. Uh, but I think the French got there first, when the French constitution said, liberté Egalité, fraternité. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all equal. We all have the same freedoms. 
But those are modern documents. We took a long time to get there. And that equality of all humans took centuries to be acknowledged. And I blame church. I blame the church teachers, the church leaders, that it took so long to get there. Because it's already in the New Testament, very clearly. And yet, we didn't get there. The Bible clearly teaches that God has no favourites. And it repeats it quite often. I, the number of repeats was somewhat surprising to me. I thought this would be so, a little thing that was hidden away somewhere, and that's why we didn't notice it. But it's repeated. And for some reason, we neglected it for a long time. And it took the secular world to teach it to us. That all people are equal and God has no favourites. That equality is widely emphasised. You find it in the writings of Peter and Paul and James and Jesus, of course. They all taught that God has no favourites. We're all equal. He doesn't give preference to rich or to poor, to any particular race or culture. You remember when the first Gentile became a Christian, when Cornelius became a Christian, and he called Peter in to try and explain to him what it was that uh, he'd discovered. And Cornelius invited his whole family. And so when Peter arrives, it's not just his family there, there's his friends as well. It's a, a big house in the a big room in the house filled with people for Peter to preach. And listen to the very first words that Peter says. In uh, Acts 10.34, then Peter began to speak, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. God does not show favouritism. Later in uh, Peter's first epistle, he explains this. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverend, in reverend fear, knowing that it's not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. That is, he says, we're, we're all equal because we're all equally sinners. We're all equally bad. And he says we're all foreigners, not just Gentiles, or Jews, he's including Jews there. Every believer is a foreigner because we don't belong here. We're not citizens of earth, we're citizens of heaven. In, in the second chapter he continues, he says, we are foreigners and we're exiles because once you were not a people, a nation, but now you are the people of God. We're a nation ourselves. All of us from loads of different cultural backgrounds, but we make up one nation, a nation of God, and we're all foreigners here on earth because we, this isn't really our home. And then he tells us what the purpose of that nation is. He says in verse 12, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those words there, 
You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They reflect what we heard way back before God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, just before when they were assembling round the mountain, when he says to them, you Jews, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exactly the same thing. That's what God wanted for those Jews gathering around the mountain of Sinai. And that suggests that the church has inherited the special status of Israel. And yet Peter is insistent God has no favourites, not even the church. And God's lack of favouritism isn't just here in Peter's speech to Gentiles to make them feel good. Paul agreed. He said, all sinners face the same punishment, both Jews and Gentiles, because God has no favourites. Let, let me read from Colossians. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jews and for the Gentiles, for God does not show favouritism. And now, now we're starting to hear a theme. God has no favourites. In Colossians, he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. It, it's actually a, a word which uh, is uh, um, quite new in New Testament times, this, this word favouritism. And the, the Christians are grabbing it and using it. Paul told slaves and their owners that God regards them both as equals. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And James said that God has no favorites among the rich or among the poor. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes and you say, oh, here's a good seat for you, sir, and you can sit on the floor at his feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Those in Jesus Christ must not show favouritism, says James. And Paul even said that the hierarchies in the church don't represent anything that he regards as important. In Galatians 2, he says about how in his early days he met the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He says, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel as I preach among the Gentiles. For those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me, for God does not show favoritism. The church leaders, in, including Peter, who later some regards as the first pope, Paul says it makes no difference. Their status makes no difference. God has no favorites. And perhaps now we can see why this theme of favoritism didn't get preached uh, through the uh, history of the church because, uh, hey, 
if the priests aren't favourites, uh, we're not going to preach that. It's a theme that Christians picked up and ran with, but they didn't pick it up from the society around them. This is Roman society was, was based on a hierarchy of wealth. If you paid a million sesterce into the public funds, then you got to be a senator. And if you paid 400,000 sesterce, then you got to be an equestrian. That's a high-class Roman. Very hierarchical, not at all equality. And Christians didn't pick up this idea of equality from Jews because, well, <laughs> Jews regarded themselves as rather special. They were the only people who were ever going to get to heaven. No Gentiles are going to get there. And I, I guess they picked this up from the Old Testament where God does appear to have favourites. I mean, you know, you've got people like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and the, the nation of Israel that he sired. And King David seems very special. But what is it that they're special for? They're not regarded and treated as special because they're perfect. <laughs> Far from it. You remember Abraham, he lied about his <coughs> wife being his sister and uh, nearly endangered her life. And uh, Jacob was famous for being a heel. Uh, that's what his name means, heel. Uh, that is a, a double dealer. And David had a woman's husband murdered so that he could marry her. God's chosen nation of Israel wasn't any better, as the prophets repeatedly point out. They were committing all kinds of sin. So why did God exercise his power to help these individuals and that nation and treat them as special? Well, Spider-Man... Are you Spider-Man fans? Then you know that with great power comes great responsibility. That's hammered into anyone who watches the movies. God was looking after them as a special group because they had a special job that needed doing. The Israelites were rescued from Egypt not because God loved them more than anyone else, but because they had a special task that he was calling them out for. They were rescued because God needed a nation who knew about him and knew his laws. And they were supposed to teach all the other nations about God and teach them his laws. And so as they get to Sinai, as they're gathering around the mountain, ready to get the, the first copy and to get the, 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 the first edition of those laws, he said to me, you will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. The whole nation was going to be priests. Because they were going to be priests to everyone else, all the other nations. They were going to lead everyone to God. God didn't want a relationship just with Jews. He wants a relationship with everyone, with every nation. And the Jews were supposed to be that special nation, a nation of priests, that would achieve this. And the purpose of Israel was to bring all the other nations to God. But while Moses was up the mountain, what did they do? Oh, he's been gone a long time and we, 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 we like worshipping idols. We like, worship, we like something we can see, something we can actually look at and uh, dance around. And they made a calf. They made a calf uh, from metal and 
then I had a big party. So when Moses came down the mountain with the first edition of the Ten Commandments, he was so angry he shattered them on the ground. And the only tribe that didn't join in with this worship of the calf, this idolatry, was the tribe of Levi. So the Levites became the priests to Israel. They were the ones who tried to lead the other tribes back to God. But they were so busy with that task, they couldn't deal with all the foreigners. They couldn't deal with the other nations. And so Israel didn't carry out that role of being world changers that they were being called to be. And it fell to other people, to the church, to us. And the church was supposed to go out into all nations and change the world. And we're doing a fairly good job with that. Peter says that now we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But now that you know how special you are, I don't want you to feel special. Because we mustn't let this special task that we have make us think that we are God's favourites. We're not. That was Israel's mistake. They thought that the task that was special made them special and made them God's favourites and they could do no wrong. Actually, they, they should have worked it out from the Old Testament. You do have it in the Old Testament, but it's not very clear. Um, when God is described as the judge, it says in uh, Deuteronomy, the Lord your God the, is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty judge, who is awesome and shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And uh, then uh, in Chronicles, they're told uh, human judges should be the same. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there's no injustice, no partiality, no bribery. God has no favourites. God is that judge who is absolutely pure and impartial. It was a unique message in the Old Testament times because, uh, hey, you know, why do you take an offering to the temple? Why, why do you sacrifice an animal which is valuable and give it to priests? Well, you do it to get you favours. You do it in order to make yourself God's favourite. You gave your God an offering and then you got special treatment in return. And both the world of the Old Testament religions and especially in the Greek and Roman religions worked that way. You gave things to God or to the temple so that God would treat you as his favourite. So let's remind ourselves of the things that don't make us God's favourite in the New Testament. We don't become favourites by being rich. We don't become favourites by being poor. We're not God's favourites by being Jews or by being Gentiles or any other nationality, not even British. We don't become God's favourites by becoming a priest or a bishop, or even a pope. That doesn't mark us as God's favourites. That's all unpacked in the, Old, in the New Testament. 
So we can, <laughs> we can see why that theme wasn't being preached by uh, the church through the ages. Priests and bishops and kings did consider themselves as God's favourites. And they certainly didn't want to teach that God has no favourites. They encouraged the rich to give to the church so that God would be good to them, put them in his good books. And they encouraged uh, sacrifices in a sense because, you know, sacrifice your money and give it to the church and then God will be nice to you. And told the poor to be good so that God would make their life easier. That is, you become God's favourite by giving a big donation or by living a good life. Uh, hang on, that's what we believe, isn't it? You um, give to God and he'll give back more. And if you're good, God will help you. I'm afraid that that belief is what's left over from those priests teaching us through the years in order to preserve their own favoritism, their own privileged status. It isn't what Jesus said. Jesus taught something revolutionary. He said, God really does love everyone. He doesn't have favorites. He said, everyone, anyone can repent at any time. You remember the parable of the workers in the vineyard, those who um, worked all day got the same payment as the people who worked just one hour. Someone who repents after decades of hedonism and selfish living is saved. Someone who gives a lifetime of service and worship to God is saved. Their service is recognized in heaven, but it gains them no privileged status on earth. God has no favorites. Good people still suffer illness, still suffer theft, still suffer violence, still suffer earthquakes along with everyone else. They're no favorites. God doesn't show us favoritism by giving him gifts or by being good. Whether good or bad, God doesn't have favorites who get more. Jesus put it this way, your father in heaven causes his son to sh shine and to rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. After all, if you have more than one child, do you have a favorite? God doesn't have any favorites among his children. And so Jesus says in the, the verse just before that, love your enemies so that you can be children of your father. Those people who are enemies to us are actually brothers and sisters in the family of God, which is a very strange feeling for us because they're being nasty to us, and yet they're our brothers and sisters in God. Now, the Bible does say there will be a judgment day 
when things are sorted out somewhat, when things will be very different. But in the meantime, everyone gets equal treatment. Everyone has equal opportunity. Anyone at any time can repent and decide to love and serve God. And they don't do that in order to have an easy life, because it's clear they won't. God doesn't reward us in this life for following him. And we wouldn't want that. Well, it would be nice. It would be nice to have, a, have everything that God wants for us in this life. But the point is, we don't serve God in order to get those benefits. We serve God because we're responding to the love that he's shown us in Jesus. We worship and honour God as a natural reaction to how wonderful he is. If we were rewarded in this life, uh, then people would serve God with ulterior motives. And of course, some people actually do that. Uh, some people give to God in order to get back and become rich. And there are unscrupulous preachers who sell this message and become rich themselves by being given lots of things by the people who follow them. And some people want to follow all the rules in order to get an easy life. And of course you do avoid an awful lot of trouble if you keep all the rules and the laws, then you don't end up in prison. But those who keep all the rules still suffer in this world. They suffer along with everyone else from the evil that's in this fallen world that God will fix. And those who live good lives in order to benefit from them, well, when things go wrong, they complain to God. They say, well, why did you let this happen to me? I'm your favourite. Because they haven't yet learned that God has no favourites. Of course, in eternity, there'll be an obvious difference for those who have repented. Because those who seek God will find him and be close to him forever. And those who reject or hide from God will also achieve their goal. That they will be far from God and from all goodness. Paul puts it this way in Thessalonians. They'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord and his glory. That is, they'll be separate from everything that's good and nice and worthwhile, everything that's enjoyable. And, which is the same as saying, as he does in the first part of that same verse, they will be punished with eternal destruction. Because that's what happens when you are completely separate from God. So at that point, I suppose we will be able to say God will have favourites. Though another way of looking at it is that God is letting everyone get what they want. That is, those who want to be with him will enjoy all his goodness, unfiltered by the evil of this world. And those who don't want anything of God those who want to avoid him, run away from him, will achieve that too. And they'll be separated 
from God and all of his goodness. God won't have favourites in that sense, in that everyone gets what they want. But God doesn't want it that way. It says in Thessalonians that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of him. And that's why he called us to be a kingdom of priests, to be a nation that leads others to him. So that we, we don't make a nation, this little church by ourselves, but everyone else out there meeting on Sundays, meeting during the week to worship God, they make a huge nation, a huge proportion of the world to lead the rest into God's kingdom, to enjoy his benefits, and then we can be favourites who get his favour. But in the meantime, we serve God because we want to serve him, not because he's going to be special to us.